Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, with the Republicans' majority in the House down to just three votes, control of Congress is very much up in the air next year. And once again, the road to a majority for Democrats runs through California. Nonpartisan analysts say four House seats in California are up for grabs, all of them currently held by Republicans, with two others being very competitive. We'll check in on those races, plus the hotly contested Bay Area race to replace Anna Eshoo, who's retiring after 30 years in Washington, and Kevin McCarthy's open seat where Republicans are fighting among themselves over who's running. The political landscape for California in 2024 after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Well, you might be busy holiday shopping or maybe hopping from party to party, but for candidates and campaigns in California, this is the time to focus on the March primary, and a lot is at stake. A U.S. Senate seat here and control of the House of Representatives, where the expulsion of George Santos and the early departure of Kevin McCarthy leaves Republicans with just a three-seat majority. With a half dozen or so California House seats in play and a wave of retirements among veteran Democrats, both parties will be focused on holding onto or picking up seats here. Joining us to talk about all this and more, David Wasserman, senior editor and elections analyst for the Cook Political Report. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And with me here in the studio, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. Hey, Marisa. Hey, good morning. Well, David, let me begin with you. Big picture, um, you know what? You know what are the the main cross currents happening as we head into twenty twenty four from a political point of view? Yeah, I think cross currents is a good word for it because at the top of the ballot, you see the president struggling in terms of his approval rating and in polls against the former president. Um, there was a Monmouth national survey that had his overall approval today at 34 mm. percent. That's not a place where most Democrats down ballot uh, would like the president to be if he is indeed going to be the nominee again. And yet at the House level, you've got only five Democrats who represent districts Trump carried in 2020 and 18 Republicans in districts that Joe Biden carried in 2020. And Democrats only need to pick up five seats on a net basis to win back control of the House. There are five districts in California alone represented by a Republican uh, that were carried by Biden last cycle. And Democrats have really planted a lot of their efforts in 
California and New York, two states where they woefully underperformed in the midterm elections. And we have four Republican incumbents in the toss-up column at the Cook Political Report. Uh, and uh, they you know, run the gamut from the Central Valley uh, to the Inland Empire and Northern LA County. So we'll see what Democrats can do, but it's an essential essential piece of their path to the House majority. How big a deal is the president's approval rating in races like this? I mean, I, I think it would be unprecedented, I think, for a president whose approval rating was below 40 to get reelected. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But, uh, you know, certainly 34 percent is not, as you said, where Democrats want. But wh- where does it really matter in terms of these House races? Well, it matters in terms of turnout. It also matters... Uh, what the election is is going to be about. Democrats would like the election to not be about Joe Biden and litigating the particulars of his record. They want it to be about Donald Trump, who lost California um, by obviously a massive margin in 2016 and 2020. And they'd also like it to be about Republican policies in Congress. Uh, Democrats would love to be able to tie these Republicans in California to the new speaker, uh, Mike Johnson from Louisiana, to say that uh, this is a party that uh, was already uh, in in the mold of Trump, but has been taken over by uh, radical social conservatives who want to ban abortion everywhere uh, and who don't believe uh, that same-sex marriage should be legal. Obviously, Mike Johnson comes from more of a religious conservative background than Kevin McCarthy did. Uh, McCarthy was more of a pure uh, political strategist. Uh, Johnson really is as conservative as they come, and every Californian uh, on the Republican side voted for him to become speaker. Yeah. Well, and we all get, you know, Marisa and I both get the press releases every time a, uh, you know, a Republican in a in a toss up kind of seat votes for say Mike Johnson or you know uh, Jim Jordan or votes for an impeachment <laughs> inquiry. So you know, and I know obviously the Republicans tried that strategy with Nancy Pelosi um, around the country, David. So what, like, how important is that, or is it more of an accumulation of things that maybe cast doubt on the Republican uh, incumbent? It varies from district to district, and one thing we're watching is is the kind of the cross tabs of the presidential race, we're, we're noticing that, you know, Biden is holding his own, or, you know, we might say that Trump's unpopularity is holding its own among uh, white voters uh, and and those with college degrees, where we're really seeing continued erosion for Democrats is among um, Hispanic Latino voters, to some degree among Um, uh, among uh, black voters and then definitely among young voters. And what Democrats in California uh, look forward to in presidential election cycles is a big surge in Latino turnout and and youth turnout, young turnout. And that is typically what has allowed them to win back, you know, ground that they've lost in midterm elections in the successive presidential year. If they're not getting that lift at the top of the ticket, it's going to be harder for them to beat John Duarte in in California 13 or David Valadeo um, in uh, the 22nd district or even or especially Mike Garcia, uh, you know, a, a bedroom community district where there are lots of, you know, transient residents who, um, you know, have fewer community ties 
they they're pretty liberal leaning, but they only turn out in presidential elections. Well, what if they don't turn out at the same levels mm-hmm. that they did in 2020 when we had a historic turnout? So, uh, you know, what the one district where I think Democrats are really bullish on their prospects that, um, you know, wasn't a district that voted for uh, for for uh, Biden or Hillary Clinton is Ken Calvert's district in Riverside County. You know, anything that is touching Palm Springs is a place where the, you know, the Republican performance has been dropping like a rock uh, for the past uh, two decades. And and so Will Rollins, that race in California's 41st district, we see that as a toss up and, you know, kind of in the same bucket as these Biden Republican seats that, um, you know, you, you can basically uh, put it in the toss-up column and 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 leave it there through election day. Yeah, that's David Wasserman, senior editor and elections analyst with the Cook Political Report, also a preeminent election watcher. If you ever follow him on X or Twitter, David, you're you're, you're calling races before AP, which I love. Um, Marisa, let me just ask you: uh, a lot of these key races that David was just talking about. Uh, our matchups, our rematches. You know, we've got uh, David Valadeo up against Rudy Salas again. We've got Adam Gray, maybe. the Democrat. Maybe we'll <laughs> talk about that part of it in a second. But Adam Gray, the Democrat, against John Duarte uh, in the Central Valley, and then you know uh, Will Rollins and Ken Calvert, the Republican in uh, Riverside. What do you make of? I mean, obviously this is a presidential year, but what difference might it make that those races were all so close? Now we're into 2024. I mean, I think that there's always a couple buckets here. And it's funny because we talk so much and you have to when you zoom out 435 house seats about the national kind of mood and the Biden stuff. But ultimately, a lot of these districts, I think, do come down to individual candidates, right? When when the margin is that close, you do see, I think, the importance of not just good candidates, but candidates that have deep ties, that have, you know, relationships in their district. I'm thinking about the Orange County districts we've covered over every cycle since 2016 or whatever. And, you know, someone like Michelle Steele, like might be a little more conservative than her district has leaned, but she has been there so long and she's a really good retail politician. Um, So I think that that is going to play. And I think in some ways, you know, these Democrats who are challenging the incumbent sort of have a leg up because they're not starting from scratch. You know, they've done this before. Yeah, they have name ID. It's not their first rodeo. Um, And, you know, I think what they would hope is that maybe they learn from some mistakes from the last time. But you have to kind of layer that on top of the national picture and the fact that so much of politics is, you know, the way people walk into the voting booth is going to be colored by this presidential year. And so that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the district. Absolutely. And David Wasserman, you recently uh, put that race, the uh, Calvert-Will Rollins race down in the Riverside uh, uh, Inland Empire area, you put that into toss-up. You moved that from, I think, lean Republican uh, to toss-up. What what causes something like that uh, a shift at, at, at Cook? What do you what what do you see? Well, you've got a very long-term incumbent in Ken Calvert, who's been there since 1992, and has a very lengthy, you know, three-decade voting record to pick apart. Uh, he didn't always represent a, a district that had a considerable. Um, uh, LGBT population, um, and obviously redistricting this past go around changed that. And so Democrats can point to to aspects of his record from the 90s. Now, obviously, Will Rollins litigated a lot of that in 2022 and came quite close. You know, this was a, a low single digit margin that Calvert won by the last time. 
And every two years, this district gets more liberal as you have more newcomers <clears throat> to uh, to the Palm Springs area and the in Inland Empire who are either <clears throat> drawn to it for uh, cultural reasons or uh, are getting priced out of of uh, of L.A. So, you know, you have, uh, I think, a recipe for for demographic change that benefits Democrats. And also Will Rollins is now very much on the map for uh, for national Democrats and donors and and uh, could have a financial uh, parity with with the incumbent in that contest. So uh, that, I think, is is now a critical seat for Democrats to retake the majority. But at the same time, um, you know, they they have struggled to recruit against uh, uh, Michelle Steele. And, you know, across the other races, they're relying on, um, as Marisa said, a, an awful lot of rematches and and uh, same candidates that they ran in the midterms. Yeah, coming up on a break. Uh, but I want to ask you, Marisa, uh, you know, in that uh, the race with Ken Calvert and Will Rollins, there's also the Corona part of that district, the, the Western part, mm -hmm. which is much more red. And, you know, I would think people like uh, Rollins have to do well with Latino voters. We'll, we'll come back to this in a minute. But it, it would seem like in a district like that, that vote really matters. Yeah. And I think that this has been a challenge we've seen, right, for Democrats in general. But again, this is where candidates can matter. And even if Biden isn't doing well with those folks, he might be able to speak to them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, all these cross currents. We haven't even talked about abortion yet. We'll do that. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to continue our conversation with David Wasserman from the Cook Political Report, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent here at KQD. We're going to broaden it out as well, and we'd love to get your email, questions, comments. Uh, you can call us. There's a lot of ways you can reach us. Forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866 733 6786. Scott Schaefer here this hour from Mina Kim. We've got much more to talk about. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking about the state of play as the 2024 election comes into focus, the hottest races to keep track of and what's at stake. We're talking with David Wasserman, senior editor and elections analyst with the Cook Political Report. Also, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent here at KQED, co-host with me of KQED's Political Breakdown. And joining us now, Ivy Cargill. She's associate professor in political science at CSU Bakersfield. And also Paul Mitchell, Vice President of Political Data, Inc. They provide voter information to political campaigns, consultants, and pollsters. Paul and Ivy, welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much. Ivy, you're down there in Kern County. We haven't talked about the congressional race that has an open seat now that Kevin McCarthy has stepped away. And there's a bit of chaos down there. Tell us what the state of race is there. Um, well, so uh, when McCarthy announces his retirement, uh, everyone's looking to see who's going to run for the seat. Um, there had been one person who had already filed, I believe uh, his name is David Giglio, who ha- was looking to challenge McCarthy. Um, so there was that person, but everybody just assumed that Vincent Fong, who is an assembly member um, and uh, represents the Bakersfield area in the California assembly and who also used to work for McCarthy um, before he ran for the assembly would be the natural pick. But he initially said that he was not going to run. And then at the last moment decided that he was and uh, filed the paperwork. However, he had also already filed paperwork for re-election to the assembly. And so now there is a... um, in another's chaos because it's not clear uh, exactly if he can or he cannot run. Now there is a law that says a California law that says that uh, people cannot uh, run for two offices, or at least it alludes to the fact that people can't run for two offices at the same time and appear on the ballot on, on the ballot for two different offices. Um, but it's not clear exactly uh, if this is exactly what's going to happen. I know that everyone is uh, or people are saying that lawsuits are going to be filed and challenges are going to be filed. But as far as we know, the Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber, has said that uh, he's not that Vincent Fong is not going to appear in the official list of candidates for that seat. Well, and the clock is ticking, obviously, because they have to print ballots uh, and, you know, campaigns have to get their infrastructure. Who's going to give money to a candidate that may not be running? Um, Marisa, what are your thoughts about that? The the sort of turmoil down there? I mean, you have to in many ways blame Kevin McCarthy for this because he took to the last minute to announce he was leaving. Absolutely. And and I think a lot of folks were really expecting Shannon Grove, a longtime sort of name there in Republican politics, who's in the state Senate, to jump in and she declined. I mean, I do expect Fong will follow through with what he's promised and file a lawsuit. And I mean, he could be put back on the ballot. It is sort of wild that at this point, there's not a big name in that race, right? And you have Kevin McCarthy short term erstwhile speaker, but still was speaker and such a huge force in California politics for so long. You know, the fact that he's stepping down and there's not really a big name in that race. But I think you also have to step back and think about this. Like, if someone like Shannon Grove is declining to run, and maybe she had other reasons, but you do just think about how toxic Congress has become. And like, even somebody who's pretty, you know, far right as her may just not want the headache. And well, yeah, we that says heard that. Something. Yeah, we kind of heard that from LaFonza Butler, who said yeah. she didn't want to run for the full six year term Senate seat. There may have been other reasons there as well. But, you know, David Wasserman, I know we're, you're going to leave us uh, in about uh, about 10 minutes or so. So I want to ask you th- that, that kind of turmoil in a seat, and we're 
we're seeing that across the country where you have sort of MAGA Republicans running against maybe somebody who's more electable in November. Uh, you know, here we have the top two primary, but in most states, it's a Republican and a Democratic nominee. What role does all this sort of turmoil play in the ultimate outcome of an election? Uh, the irony here is that McCarthy has meticulously planned out throughout you know, the last decade plus which Republicans are going to be the best fits for every district right. in the country. And yet <laughs> he couldn't Except even engineer a, a political ally to succeed him uh, in you know the hours that he left uh, between his departure announcement and, and the filing deadline. And, you know, even if Shannon Grove had run as expected and filed for the ballot, <clears throat> it would have represented a an ideological shift to the right in this seat that is kind of reflective of what we're seeing in the Republican conference nationally. Uh, you had in McCarthy someone who was uh, ruthless about about uh, expanding uh, Republican numbers in the House and raising money uh, and and mentoring candidates. But he was ultimately a pragmatist uh, when it came to legislation, and that was po probably his downfall. He knew at the outset of the, the 15 votes that it took to become speaker that this was essentially an ungovernable, um, um, non non-working majority that Republicans had earned in the midterms. And now uh, you you do see that the Jim Jordan, Mike Johnson wing of the party is going to be the dominant one in 2025, regardless of whether Republicans are in the majority or the minority. Yeah. Paul Mitchell, I um, just want to ask you a question about uh, that kind of chaos. Now, we're, we're not suggesting that McCarthy seat could flip blue. It's just what what shade of red really is is <laughs> going to happen there at the end. Um, does, but do you see that sort of chaos? As part, and there's a larger narrative coming out of Washington that Republicans can't really manage the House. Um, does that spill over, do you think, into any, any of these other closely watched uh, toss-up races like, you know, David Valadeo, for example? Well, I don't think that this chaos here in the McCarthy seat really kind of relates to other congressional districts much, although one of the points about the McCarthy district is that uh, the last redistricting made it more and more Republican. It's one of the most Republican districts in the state. And the fact is, is that Valadeo could have moved into the McCarthy seat. Um, I think his concern was that it was so Republican mm. that he would be facing challenges from the right if he was running in that seat versus facing challenges from the left if he stays in the seat he's in, which is an interesting uh, statement because uh, he's essentially saying he'd rather run against Democrats every two years than have to face a party challenge from the right. Mm. Um, but it is, I mean, I think it's fodder for political consultants and and the media and everybody to talk about this chaos in that seat. And one thing that he has, hasn't even been answered yet is he hasn't officially resigned yet, as far as I know. And the fact is, is that depending on when he resigns, we will really determine whether or not we actually have a special election mm -hmm. in addition to this regular election. We could have this oddity where we have a March primary and then six or eight or 10 weeks later, we have a special election for a seat that people just voted on. Hmm. Yeah. Marisa? Oh, and I was just going to say, I mean, just looking at the emails that are coming in on this race, David Giglio, who we mentioned, you know, is sending out attacks on um, Sheriff Mike Bordeaux, who's running, calling him an open border globalist rhino. So I think that gives you like a sense of sort of where the kind of policy and politics conversations are in a district like that. Um, you know, to Paul's point, wildly different than the sort of 
attacks that someone like David Valadeo just up the road is going to be facing from, you know, uh, his Democratic challengers. And so I think, um, yeah, all politics still yeah. still remain local, even if they're national as well. Yeah. And I- Ivy Cargo, what what is your sense of, you know, how people down there, especially Republicans, are, you know, how are they viewing McCarthy's downfall and sudden resignation? McCarthy is a beloved son in, in Bakersfield. And so people are um, people are pretty bummed out that he's that he uh, lost the speakership and then that he you know decided to resign or reti- resign from from the seat. So um, right now, uh, I would say emotions are high and uh, people are pretty, pretty uh, upset about it. But again, um, I think now with all of the different people who are going to step in to 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 run for the seat um i think people are also now starting to pay more attention to that and i mean at the end of the day you know he was in in the seat for a while and and it was nice for folks in bakersfield to have someone in washington dc who was homegrown and so now it's possible depending on you know who who wins the election it'll it, it might be somebody who is not from bakersfield right somebody maybe from uh, from a different town and so that also kind of, that bumps people out in bakersfield David Wasserman, um, before I let you go, I do want to ask you about one of these congressional seats that I think is a toss-up. Uh, Mike Garcia, the uh, incumbent down there in the L.A. area, his district is a little more conservative, the northeastern part of L.A., Lancaster, Santa Clarita, Palmdale. Um, he defeated Christy Smith, who was the Democratic nominee, three times. <laughs> um, she is no longer running. Uh, and We've got this guy, George Whitesides, uh, who might be a better fit for the district. He worked for NASA. He's a According to his website, an aerospace entrepreneur. What are your thoughts about that race? I mean, Mike Garcia, Latino, um, and you know George Whiteside's first-time candidate. Uh, how do you see that? Yeah, uh, I mean, this has always been a fascinating district, uh, going from uh, Katie Hill uh, and and now Mike Garcia. Uh, and Democrats are excited to have a new candidate in this race. Uh, you know, one one piece of fallout from McCarthy's resignation is that. Uh, or overthrow as speakers that uh, Republicans might not benefit as much from the money that he brought in. Uh, and that is a major unknown uh, for uh, for these Republicans like Garcia, who have raised a lot of money on their own, but really benefited from ads uh, by the Congressional Leadership Fund, the NRCC, um, outside entities uh, that McCarthy had huge influence over. Now, George Whiteside's it has a lot of personal money that he can spend here. And Democrat, the, the key is whether Democrats can kind of take some of the patina uh, off of um, Garcia's fighter pilot per, per, uh, persona and biography and shift it more, shift the emphasis to his voting record, uh, which is really quite conservative for a member from a district that Biden carried by 13 points um, uh, uh, back in 2020. Uh, they're going to be pointing uh, to uh, stock trades. They're going to be pointing to his support for uh, for Johnson uh, and uh, uh, objection to certifying the 2020 election, his, uh, his vote for an impeachment inquiry. These are all uh, things that that probably separate Garcia from the median voter in this district. But if Biden's approval rating with Hispanic voters is underwater, then maybe it's not a Biden plus 13 district in 24. Maybe it's 
closer to the tide. Who mm. knows? I just uh, you mentioned the stock trades that you're referring, I think, to a uh, report that he had uh, traded some Boeing stock right before a negative report came out about Boeing and the plane crashes with their uh, this was it the jumbo those jumbo planes that went down. Is that what you're referring to? Right. And Democrats are are going after him on that, <clears throat> just as Republicans have gone after Democratic members who um, who traded individual stocks. Yeah. All right, David Wasserman, I know you have to, to go. We appreciate your being with us, senior editor and elections analyst with the Cook Political Report. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And again, we're going to continue talking about the 2024 election. We'd love to hear what's on your mind. What issues will be most important to you in the 2024 election? How are you going to decide, especially among different candidates from the same party in, say, the U.S. Senate race or a local congressional race? We haven't talked about Anna Eshoo's seat. We'll do that in just a moment. But we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And we're going to go to Ryan in Sonoma. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I was calling. Uh, you have not talked about one of the uh, targeted races in California, which is the 3rd Congressional District, which is primarily from Roseville, Folsom, up to Lake Tahoe. Uh, I would love to uh, hear um, your analysis on uh, that race and the, the changing demographics from a lot of uh, let's say, new Democratic voters moving into the district in uh, post-COVID. Paul Mitchell, you want to take that on? Is, is that the, the Kylie, Kylie seat? Yeah. yeah, it's the Kevin Kylie seat, yeah. Yeah, Running this is definitely Jessica an Morse, interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting district, and for the exact reasons that the caller mentioned, and uh, that this is a district that has been seen as a competitive district even in the prior redistricting. Um, in 2012, there was hope that Democrats might be able to field an exciting candidate. Uh, I can tell you Alyssa Milano was one of the people that Democrats were engaging with because she was one of those uh, kind of Democrats that had moved to Truckee uh, during COVID. And uh, so there was some excitement in 2022 that we might see a competitive race there. Um, Kevin Kiley won in 22. Uh, For 24, Jessica Morse, who also ran in 2018, is looking at running in this district. I think she's the the Democrat that most people are looking at. And she ran it against is, McClintock, right, last time? Yeah, Tom McClintock, McClintock was a in a neighboring seat. Yeah. So this hasn't reached in the Wasserman and Dave Wasserman's Cook Political Report to the kind of highest target. It's not seen as a, a good opportunity for Democrats right now, but it is one that they'll put up a competitive candidate in. And the movement of voters to the exurbs of Sacramento County, so thinking in Placer County, cities like Roseville, you've seen a lot of people from the Bay Area moving there. When they move there, they take their political values with them. Uh, There's increasing diversity there. There's an increasing growing LGBT population in this kind of east of Sacramento exurb area going out towards Lake Tahoe. And so it is one that I think demographically is shifting towards Democrats. It's just a question of how fast and how entrenched Kevin Kiley becomes in in that district. And Marisa, Kevin Kiley, a very ambitious Republican. He was on the House floor last week uh, railing against the governor, which is a little odd. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those districts where you see the sort of challenge for Democrats, even as a lot of people, especially during COVID, moved into more sort of exurban on the border of rural areas. It hasn't quite translated yet into those districts becoming blue, but it could. Right. And so I think I mean, if you look at, um, you know, this is Cook says that this is likely Republican, right? Which is sort of the furthest of any toss-up that you can be to the right. Um, 
but yeah, that said, I think a good candidate. I mean, Kylie is definitely very, you know, as you said, outspoken. He's challenged the governor. Ran, um, ran on the recall. Ran on the recall. Yeah. He's pretty, I think you could say sort of MAGA. So I think that there's, you know, there, there is maybe in a couple cycles a bigger risk for him than there might be right now. Yeah. All right. Ryan, thanks very much for the call. Some listener comments here. Uh, Dan writes, I have a couple questions. First, are there any scenarios where Biden declines to run and Democrats can find a younger candidate. Well, they certainly couldn't find an older one, I don't think. Secondly, can Democrats do anything to improve the situation at our southern border? Good questions. Um, Let me ask uh, you, Ivy Cargill, uh, Biden's age, uh, I mean, obviously you're you're in a more conservative area down there in Kern County, Bakersfield, but there are some of these other seats, the David Valadeo seat, the John Duarte seat in the Valley. You know, on the margins, do you think who's at the top of the ticket will, will matter? I think it will. I think it definitely will matter. I think at the end of the day, um, once we start to see much more campaigning as we, as I think in the coming weeks, as, we're, as we start to see more campaigning, as we gear up for the primaries, um, I think that my assumption is that the Democrats are really going to start making the, st- the stark contrast between uh, the, the top of the ticket for the Democrats and the Republicans, the idea of democracy being on the line. Um, and so I think that um, my, you know, my assumption is that it's going to matter because the Democrats are going to make the pitch that it's, you know, it, this is a vote to save our democracy. Right. And so, you know, thinking about that, this is kind of like a 20, like a 2020 redux, not just in terms of the candidates, but also in in terms of the campaign messaging. Um, And I think that uh, voters are going to be made to think about that in addition to all of the other issues that are that that are important, like immigration and what's happening at the border. Well, and Paul Mitchell, the second part of Dan's question about the uh, border security, that really cuts both ways for Democrats, because you've got this negotiation now underway with Republicans and Democrats uh, in the Senate. Senate trying to come up with some kind of a deal to enhance border security, change some of the immigration policies, move them, frankly, a little bit more toward what Donald Trump supported in exchange for getting funding for the Ukraine war as well as Israel. Uh, but you've got Alex Padilla, the U.S. senator, saying, hey, you're going to call that's going to be a big problem come November if you do that with Latino voters. How do you see that issue? Well, definitely it's one where Padilla is not too pleased with the Biden administration placing this emphasis on the kind of global concerns they have with regards to what's happening in the Middle East and in Ukraine and even in Taiwan uh, and placing those issues ahead of a more domestic and more immediate California issue and also an issue like you're saying that is very important for Latino voters in a state where we just talked about these large numbers of districts uh, that could control uh, or you know decide to control yeah. the house. Paul, I'm going to hold hold that thought because we have to take a break. We're going to continue our conversation with Paul Mitchell, Ivy Cargill, and Marisa Lagos. Give us a call if you want to join us. Tell us what's on your mind. What are the big issues you're thinking about as we begin to think about the prim- primary in March and of course November after that? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or find us on Instagram, Facebook at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here for Mina Kim. We're talking about the 2024 election, mostly the House races that seem to be up to up for grabs. But, uh, you know, we'll talk more generally about that as well, uh, about the election. Uh, we're joined by Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent, Ivy Cargill, associate professor in political science at CSU Bakersfield, and Paul Mitchell, vice president of Political Data, Inc. And we'd love for you to join us. You can reach us you know, the usual ways. You can email us if you'd like, forum at kqed.org, or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum, or give us a ring, 866-733-6786. Marisa, um, Paul Mitchell was talking about uh, uh, Latino voters and uh, this possible deal on the border. Um, You know, and of course, Latino voters who are not a monolith, we should say, for starters, uh, but other voters also are concerned about immigration. How do you see that uh, issue, you know, cutting for Biden in particular? Well, this is one of those weird ones where, like, it could hurt him with some Latino voters and not just Latinos, but, you know, left more left leaning voters. But also, if you look at places like Texas, where Republicans have done a lot better with Latinos um, in recent cycles than I think a lot of people expected, it's possible that you know, sort of agreeing to this could neutralize some of those attacks for Biden and Democrats, especially, again, um, I think in border states like Texas, where, you know, maybe even Arizona, um, where border politics are just really different than they play in California. And I think you also would have to look, you know, to the Central Valley. I think it's a little bit more of a mixed bag here. You can't really say, oh, well, this is like Latinos and, you know, Valadeo's district or McCarthy's former district will go one way or the other. Um And we're still waiting to see what a possible deal looks like, right? Right. So, you know, not to cliche it out, but the devil's in the details. and And I think, you know, but I do think that there's a world in which as much as this is going to anger someone like Padilla, folks like Biden do see a benefit to give some of the members an an opportunity to go back and talk about the fact that, you know, it's not just open borders under a Democrat or whatever. Yeah. And obviously they want that money for the Ukraine war as well. Um, Lois writes, how does Katie Porter's Senate candidacy affect House control? Interesting question. (laughs) She, uh, Marisa, you've been down there. We've been down there. Uh, You have you know, certainly covered that district in particular. Um, you've got the Republican, Scott Baugh, who narrowly lost to Katie Porter last time, along with a couple of Democrats, Joanna Weiss and Dave Min, the state senator. Um, I don't know if that's a, that race is necessarily uh, key to control of the House, but it is a close district. I mean, any of these could be really depending on the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, Ba is a strong candidate in a lot of ways, but that is a purple district and he is very far to the right. And so I think the Democrats are nervous as they should be, because, as you said, it was very close, given the fact that Katie Porter was a pretty popular incumbent. Um, Paul can speak to this better. I believe the way the lines were redrawn uh, changed the makeup of it a little bit. Right, Paul? Yeah, the district, you know, it was just maybe a point or two. And, you know, we don't know in the last two years or four years how much that has kind of been washed away based on demographic changes as well. It is, you know, in terms of registration, it's 36 percent Democratic, 
34% Republican. So really it's about those independent voters and where they're going to break. Um, and it is a competitive district as competitive as any of the other ones that we were talking about earlier today. Um, and we also will have, you know, a candidate, whoever wins on the Democratic side, who hasn't run in a congressional uh, race before like this. So it will be an interesting challenge against Scott Boffer, Democrats. And, you know, Katie Porter has endorsed uh, state senator Dave Min. How much do you think that matters, Paul? Well, that and the state party endorsement, I think, went to Dave Min. Um, and so that does matter a lot. Uh, but, you know, really, the there's different pathways here that I think both those Democratic can candidates are looking at. There's a heavy Asian population in this district that should really advantage Dave Min. And I think that's part of his his initial pathway and the way he's thinking about this district. Um, but it's not going to be a you know real easy race here in the primary. I want to talk about uh, the Anna Eshoo seat down in the South Bay here uh, around Silicon Valley. Uh, Anna Eshoo, longtime Democratic incumbent, stepping down after some 30 years. And there's a very, very uh, energetic race to replace her. You've got Sam Licardo. Uh, these are all Democrats here. Sam Licardo, the former San Jose mayor. Joe Simidian, uh, Santa Clara County Soup. Uh, who has represented so many of the cities in that, uh, either at the county level or up in Sacramento or in the Palo Alto City Council, Evan Lowe, uh, an assemblyman. you got Rishi Kumar, who got 42% of the vote against Anna Eshoo last time. Um, Julie Lithcott-Hames, Palo Alto. A lot of people running. Uh, I should just say Julie <laughs> Lithcott-Hames is the only woman, uh, prominent woman running in there. Um, how do you see that one, Marisa? Messy. <laughs> I mean, it's a safe Democratic seat, but this is I mean, this is what happens. And it's interesting. You know, one of the articles we both read uh, preparing for this and something we've been thinking about and talking about is how all of these retirements affect California's um, sort of seniority in Congress. And does that affect our power? I, I was thinking as I read those. On the other hand, this is exactly what a lot of Democrats have been clamoring for, right, is a new generation of leadership. And so I think it'll be fascinating to see how someone, you know, um, like uh, Alex Lee, right? Or, or, uh, I'm Evan sorry, Lowe. Mixing up. Alex Lee is the, the very neighboring, young neighboring, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, member of the assembly. Uh, Evan Lowe was the youngest when he got elected to ever be elected until now Alex Lee, I think, took that title. Both both openly gay. Yeah. And Evan uh, Lowe is is 40, um, you know, which for politics is very young <laughs> to get. Um, and I, so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that type of candidacy does excite younger voters. Does it bring out new voters in a district like that, which to your point, as she was held for so long, um, or are people kind of just overwhelmed by the number of candidates on the ballot? Well, and, and how nasty does it get? And how nasty does it get? And, and Paul Mitchell also, of course, you know, you could have a single Republican who could consolidate that vote and you could have not a top two with two Dems, but a Republican and a Democrat. Yeah, that's a big deal in all these kind of races we're looking at where you have multiple Democratic candidates and maybe just one Republican running or even two. And you say, oh, well, that's a Democratic seat. So we are not going to vote in the primary. We'll just see who makes it to the general. The fact is, a lot of these races can be decided in the mm -hmm. primary effectively because this district, if the Republicans, the second candidate on the on the ballot, uh, the Republicans never going to win this district. This is a safe Democratic seat. So uh, you could have a situation where you have two Democrats going forward, uh, or you could have just one Democrat being the top vote getter and a Republican taking that second spot. Yeah. And Marisa mentioned the age of Evan Lowe, uh, who is 40-ish. And then you've got Joe Simidian, who is 70. And I'm wondering, Ivy Cargill, like how, you know, in, the, in, in your part of California, does that question of sort of uh, the generational divide, but experience versus youth, uh, does that matter to voters, do you think? 
I think to be very honest, what matters to voters is um, the ideology, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess at the end, it, people will have age and experience in the back of their minds, but you know, as you've said before, the Kern County area is extremely um, is extreme it is is extremely Republican, and there's still a lot of support for Donald Trump in the area. And so I think, um, I mean, because even thinking about uh, something that was said earlier in, in regards to Valadeo, um, he faces some pushback for for um, voting to impeach Trump and and for the first impeachment inquiry, um, and he's still facing backlash because of that. So the area is very, is very Republican, very MAGA. And so I think what really matters, age and experience matter, but I think what matters more is, are you, are you going to fall in line with Trump and, and what we want for MAGA? Yeah, that's certainly true down in Bakersfield. Here's a question from Matthew who writes, how do we grapple with misinformation during these races? How do you stand by the numbers that you put out there as being legitimate? I assume he's not sure exactly which numbers he's referring to, but Paul Mitchell, you're the numbers guy. Uh, how, how do you, what do you, what do you think about that question of misinformation? And you know, of course, we we do know, and we say all the time, all polls are not alike. You know, you really have to be discerning in terms of which polls you really put a lot of credence into. Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of election information. So election data, you know, it it goes from the stuff that I work in on a daily basis, which is the voter file data. Well, that is actually real voter registration data. It's actually better than it's almost ever been with 22 million registered voters and counties doing a much better job in the last four years, especially in keeping that data clean. Then you have things like election results and the analysis of election results. And so Ivy or I might say that Democrats have a 10 point advantage here or you know, Republicans have a three point advantage there. That is open to interpretation, but when you're listening to people who have had experience and you can Google them and see who they are, you can look at Ivy's LinkedIn right now and look at all of her work that she's done in the academic space to kind of reinforce uh, the credibility that you have there. And then the last thing is data around like polling results. And sometimes people should be skeptical about polling data that's given to them. If they see a tweet that says, candidate Bob Smith is ahead in this election, Find out if that poll came from candidate Bob Smith or if it came from UCLA or from something that Ivy was working on. So really, it's a question of, you know, when you get that data, understanding where it's coming from. And then if you're questioning the source, use the Internet, use Google, try to find uh, sources that reinforce it. Um, and uh, you've done a great job on this program and others to try to make sure that people are coming forward and talking to the public are reputable sources. Yeah. And our, uh, Ivy Cargill. We haven't talked about Trump much. Uh, you've got a mega Republican running to replace McCarthy down there. Um, we're, it's possible that we will have a, 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 a conviction of Donald Trump, perhaps, before November, at least. Uh, and yet we also see that as kind of a mobilizing issue for Republicans. How do you see that question of Trump's legal problems playing out, not just uh, in the McCarthy district, but you know, throughout uh, the Central Valley and other parts of California? You know, I honestly think that the any conviction and just the, all of the legal problems that he's having that he's having, they seem to mobilize. Like you said earlier, they seem to mobilize his his supporters. Um, and I think that it, it it's not going to have the negative impact that we all think it should. Um, at least not for the base. I think for Republicans who are a little 
maybe uh, who are a little offended by by what what is happening in terms of um, you know not wanting to support some a convicted felon. Uh, those I don't I don't know that there are very many of those in the Central Valley. Uh, unfortunately, I think that. Um, it just it galvanizes support for Donald Trump, it, it, especially because, because this he keeps saying, right, like I'm being I, I'm taking the hit for you. Uh, and I think people really do. But I think his supporters really buy into the fact that, you know, he's being tried and uh, it's an unfair trial and uh, and and they, they feel like it's personal. Yeah. Um, we've got a listener who asks, uh, can you expand on your analysis of Adam Gray's impact? He's running against the incumbent Republican John Duarte there in the Central Valley. This was the very last House race called yeah. in 2022. I think it was about 500 votes that Adam Gray fell short. Uh, this is a rematch. Marisa, you've been to that district. You've talked to Duarte. He is, although he did vote for Mike Johnson and you know, he voted for you know a number of very conservative things, he is a bit more moderate on mm-hmm. things like abortion, perhaps. And yeah. just, how do you see that issue in particular playing out? Yeah, I mean, he and Gray are interesting because I would say of all the races we've talked about, like they're the most centrist candidates, both of them. Like they, Adam Gray, they're both good Democrats, good Republican, but they're actually closer on a lot of issues, especially maybe to where voters are. I think if you look at, yeah, farming and things and Duarte has a very well-known nursery and and farming operation. Um, So I think this is where it's going to be sort of a question as to whether things like the chaos in the house, whether things like voting to, uh, you know, move forward with this impeachment inquiry, does that actually matter on the ground? And I don't know. And is that, you know, is that the campaign that Adam Gray is going to want to run is like, will he feel that that actually helps him to talk about those kind of bigger issues that tie them both to the parties or not. Um, But like you said, that was a very close district. I think, um, interestingly, I think it's also like one of the least... Um, I guess nasty if you like if you talk to both of them they're actually like I like this guy like they're not as mean as you hear some of these which could be good for voter turnout in a way people we'll won't see, be so yeah. turned but off does that does that last through next year which is going to be um, you know we say every election's the most important or most intense but it, it's going to be a year you're listening to forum I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim and let's go back to the phones now we go up to Novato and Linda welcome Hello. Um, thank you for taking my call. I would like to know the, your feelings about challenges to, six, to sitting presidents. Um, we have had, of course, challenges to sitting presidents, but only one successful that I know about. We did have Kennedy against Carter, and that wasn't successful. But LBJ was kind of moved out of office by McCarthy at the New Hampshire primary. Eugene McCarthy. Walk around. <laughs> so, yeah, Eugene McCarthy. <laughs> and so, consequently, two months later, or three months later in April, LBJ resigned hmm. and freed open the, the field to, um, yeah. to many people. Yeah. Never McCarthy. Um, yeah, and of course, that didn't really end so well. You remember there was the 1968 convention in Chicago. There was the war, which is really what drove LBJ well, out of the race. Yeah. It was the Vietnam War. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, 
at this point in the race, I mean, the, the, the rules, party rules for nominating a candidate are very different than they were in 1968. Um, you know, Marisa, you can only imagine. I mean, Gavin Newsom is ready to go. Kamala Harris would run. There'd probably be a lot of Democrats jumping in. But I don't even know how that would play out. Right. I mean, nobody wants to talk about this out loud. But I, I think some of the conversations I've had, like when, you know, I've reported out sort of stories about like, what is Newsom doing? Um, I don't think anyone thinks that, I mean, the filing deadline has passed. Nobody's challenging Biden on the March Super Tuesday, you know, primary ballots across the nation. Um, Sure, if something catastrophic were to happen to either candidate, there could be a nominating process at the convention that wouldn't really include the public in that way. Um, And that would be obviously... I think in some ways cleaner and in some ways messier. But um, yeah. I mean, as of now, it's looking like Trump and Biden. And yeah. I don't see anything happening again unless something unexpected goes forward. Yeah, that would be very, very interesting. You know, a couple of big things we haven't talked about uh, really uh, alluded to abortion a moment ago. But Paul Mitchell, how mm-hmm. do you see that? playing out. Obviously, we've seen it in other states. Uh, we saw it in Kentucky and Virginia and Ohio, and we could, the list goes on uh, just in the past few months. Um, how do you see that playing out in California? Well, it's going to continue to be a huge issue. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw this really shape the election in 2022 here in California with Prop 1 on the ballot. In 2024, there will be a repeal of Prop 8, the state's gay rights ballot measure, which will get a lot of attention. But abortion is always going to stay in the forefront. Uh, we're seeing a lot of stories like this, you know, unfortunate story of a woman in Texas who had um, had to go out of state to receive an abortion, having exhausted all of her legal remedies there. Um, And you're going to see a lot more cases around the country of the impact of the end of Roe v. Wade and the giving of these, uh, you know, the abortion debate to each of the states to fight out. And uh, it'll still be, I think, really a front burner issue for a lot of voters. And it will be the contrast in November, I'm sure, in the presidential race. RV Cargo, what would you add to that uh, in terms of abortion as an animating issue for voters, especially younger voters? Yeah, I think it's actually I, I echo everything that Paul said. It's going to be a, it's going to be a very big issue. And I think that even uh, with the situation that Kate Cox, the woman that um, Paul was alluding to uh, earlier, uh, I think it's going to matter not just for women, but I think it's also going to matter for men, because I know that part of the situation that she was facing, uh, if if um, the Texas law was would be fully enforced, is that her husband would also be considered uh, a a criminal in 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 uh, helping her in assisting her, excuse me, in, in trying to or seen as assisting her in trying to get this abortion, even though it was for her own health. Yeah. So I think this is going to be an issue that is no longer necessarily just a woman's issue, but men are caring about this as well. Yeah. And of course, Democrats yeah. are trying to put abortion measures on the ballot in places like Arizona. And I think maybe Montana as well, where John Tester is up in a tough reelection battle there. So it's only December. You know, we'll be bringing bringing you a lot more coverage of all these issues, including where these candidates stand on a lot of different issues. But uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks to David Wasserman from the Cook Political Report, Marisa Lagos here in the studio with me, KQED Politics correspondent, RV, uh, Ivy Cargyle, Associate Professor in Political Science at CSU Bakersfield, and Paul Mitchell, Vice President of Political Data. Thank you all very much for the conversation this hour. And as always, thanks to our listeners for your calls, comments, and attention to this issue. You've been listening to Forum. Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. 
You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.